In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start off by asking a question this morning. What would be the most valuable freedom that you would treasure today? Now, I think some of our kids would say, I'd like to be free from school for the rest of the year. Others of you have a different kind of desire. You're tired of doctors and illnesses, and you'd like to be free from all kinds of sickness, that kind of stuff. Many of you are tired already of the political noise, the cultural kind of buzz that's going on, and you just wish that you could be free from that. Many people in the Middle East or Ukraine would be wanting freedom from war in particular. Uh, This section is talking about the significance of freedom that is within grasp, I would say, of every human. It is the most significant freedom because it is about our eternal life, our relationship with God through Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. In this section of Galatians, Paul is talking about the freedom that we have because of Christ, a freedom of knowing that the forgiveness of our sins against God is received simply by faith in Jesus. That would be freedom to be in a place where you could say, I am secure about my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I'm secure because of faith in his promises. And if that's freedom over here, then on the opposite side, you would have slavery. And what Paul is doing is talking about a slavery in which folks are trying to meet a standard of righteousness and obedience that will hopefully and eventually earn a good standing with God. But as we followed Paul throughout Galatians, it's worthless and it's pointless. And so the slave over here is bound to this thinking of, I have to earn God's favor, I'm a slave to good works, I have to prove myself to God. That's slavery. And on the other hand, you see somebody who is completely free and saying, I have confidence in my relationship with God because I trust in Jesus Christ. So let me just review what's been going on here, especially if you're joining us for the first time. Paul had taken a missionary journey up to a region called Galatia, And he had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ there, the free gospel that comes to someone by faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. After folks received that message by faith, their lives were changed. They were assured of their relationship with God. They were formed into churches. And after Paul left, then false teachers followed Paul around into these cities, came into those churches, and started preaching, according to Galatians 1, another gospel, another message. And that message was that you need to believe in Jesus. Sounds good. But that wasn't the sum total of their message. It was you need to believe in Jesus and do these other things. And the other things that they were appealing to was the Old Testament law which is good, which was good. It was a standard of righteousness that people were to live under. It reflects God's holiness. It contains morality. And yet what they were doing was they were saying, you need to take those commands of obedience and you need to bring them into your 
idea of salvation. So it's not just believing in Jesus alone. It's believing in Jesus and doing these commands. Commands like circumcision. That was familiar to the Old Testament people of God. Commands like eating certain foods. Again, under the law of Moses. Commands like observing certain holidays and feasts. And so they were preaching that, yes, Jesus is good, but you also have to do these works in order to have salvation. Paul's explanation goes back to Galatians 1 verse 3, where he simply says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. It wasn't Jesus gave himself for our sins and you must do these works to be delivered from sin. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, He talked about this freedom and slavery. He said, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to set free those who were slaves under the law. For what purpose? So that we might receive the adoption as sons. And Paul's argument through chapters 3 and 4, the doctrinal argument there is that we are welcomed into God's family. We are are his children only on the basis of what Christ has done and us receiving it in faith, receiving Christ in faith. The opposite message over here is that, yes, Jesus has died. He's died for your sins. You should believe in him, but you also need to do good works. And folks, uh, I've said this several times We come to a book like Galatians, and the first four chapters are kind of tough sledding. But this is hugely relevant for our lives today, even for some people in here. And I've used this kind of phrase or sentence before. You ask somebody, do you know where you're going when you die? Do you know if you're a Christian? And that person responds sometimes and says something like this. I hope so. I hope God is pleased with me. I hope I've done enough. We'll see when we get there. That is slavery right here. And you're rubbing shoulders with people throughout the week that don't have freedom in Christ over here. The freedom to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. To be assured that I am in a relationship with him. This is the message of Galatians. This is the gospel that you would believe in Christ alone. So imagine a scenario with me. You are facing a climbing wall that has all kinds of grips on it. And you have to get to the top of this climbing wall. And so you put on the harness. The harness is attached to a rope that's going vertically up. And you start climbing. However, you get off the ground, and you're about 20 feet up in the air, and you start to notice that you can't see the top of the wall. It keeps going, and you have to get to the top. And then the grips on the wall are getting further and further spaced apart in such a way that They are so completely spaced apart, it's going to be impossible for you to climb up this endless wall. Slavery would be you thinking, I have to get to the top of that wall on my own. The only way I can get to heaven is getting there on my own. Freedom in Christ would be to hear a voice at the top saying, you've tried long enough. I love you. I gave myself for you. 
Stop using your strength to climb this wall. Let go and have faith in me, and I'll bring you up. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So this morning's big idea to the sermon is found in chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So the big idea for this morning's sermon is simply this. Christian, stand in freedom. Stand in freedom. And there's three sections to this passage. There's an appeal that happens, there's an allegory, and then we're going to see an answer. So an appeal, an allegory, and then an answer. All right, the appeal starts off in verses 21 to 23. He says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? I'm going to walk through some of these because I think there's a lot of confusion Many of you would say, please help me understand this passage so I, under, so I can get kind of what's going on. He's using the term law there in two different senses. Tell me, those of you who desire to be under the law, that is the Old Testament law of Moses that he's speaking of, but the term law can be used in a dual sense. It doesn't simply mean the lists of commands that you have to follow. It can also be used in the sense of the Old Testament or even the first five books of the Bible. So that first time where he uses law, he's saying, hey, those of you who desire to be under the law, he's like talking to those false teachers and that some of those who have bought into those false teachers. Those of you who desire to be under the law, have you not also listened to the Old Testament scripture? Here's an appeal. I want you to listen to this. And then he goes into the story of Abraham. And he assumes that the people know the story of Abraham. Let me just walk through it with you. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man named Abraham, his wife is Sarah, and he says to this couple who has no children, I am going to give you a child and I am going to make of you a great nation. So in Genesis 12, they receive this promise from God. As the story unfolds throughout Genesis, you get to chapter 15. Abraham and Sarah have aged. They're in their 80s by now. And God still has not given them a child. So Abraham comes to God and he says, God, I have no child. You made me a promise. <clears throat> it looks like all that I have is going to have to go to Eleazar, my servant. And God responds to him and says, no, I have made a promise and I will fulfill it. A few years later, Abraham and Sarah, they still do not have a child. Sarah is barren. And so Sarah comes up with this wild plan, and Abraham goes along with it. What's the wild plan? Sarah has a slave or servant, and her name is Hagar. Well, Abraham, seems like God's will is for us to have a child, not through me, but through Hagar. So why don't you go into her tent and have sexual relations with her and father a child for us. And Abraham, the fool that he was in that moment, says yes. And it worked. All of a sudden, Hagar is pregnant. She's got a child. His name is Ishmael. 
That's part one of the story. Now, one of the encouragements is that God is not a one-and-done kind of God. Sarah completely sinned. Abraham sinned. Hagar's part of it. God comes back to them and says, you are going to have a son. I made you a promise, and I am going to be the one that fulfills that promise. And so at the age of 99, God tells Abraham, next year I'm coming back to visit you, and you're going to have a son. Sarah is 89 at the time, by the way. God leaves, and God makes the impossible happen. And this time, instead of taking matters into their own hands and trying to work out God's promises in their lives, Abraham and Sarah lived by faith that God would carry out his promise. And so part two of the story is they have a son, and his name is Isaac. These two sons and these two women represent two different paths of life. Ishmael was born as a result of human works, and Isaac is born as a result of faith in God. So if you're taking notes right now, what you might want to do is start having two columns on your note sheet. Paul uses that story in Genesis, and he's going to apply that now in terms of slavery to works or faith in Christ. Verse 22, you see it here in this passage, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. We know whom he's talking about, Ishmael and Isaac, one born to Hagar, one born to Sarah. Both of these sons represent two different responses to God. I'm going to do it on my own or I'm going to trust God. Isaac represents faith. Ishmael represents works. Now we move into verses 24 to 27, where Paul says that he is going to use that story as an allegory. Let's take that story and now give it symbolic meaning. All right. This is where the confusion really starts to take off for folks. Before we get into the allegory, I was working through this with some folks on Friday, and Pastor Andy gave me some good ideas here that I'm going to plug in here. Before we get into the allegory, um, There are terms and cities and places here that have meaning to them that Paul's original audience would have said, yep, I understand just by you mentioning that term or that phrase, it makes sense. The whole meaning behind it just comes with that phrase. So here would be an example. If I'm talking to all of us today and I use terms like the bridge, uh, we know that we're talking about the Mackinac Bridge that connects the Lower Peninsula to the Upper Peninsula. And that's all I have to say is the bridge, and you have this whole kind of like concept that comes into mind. If I tell you about Holland, you're thinking, yep, just like 10, 12 miles south of here, tulip fest, all of that stuff. If I use the term Coast Guard, and I say I'm leaving town because of Coast Guard, you know that I'm talking about an event that's taking place, all kinds of people rush in, And I don't have to go on and on. You know that. But if we beam into Phoenix this morning, right now, and we talk to somebody on the street, and I say, the bridge, they've got no idea what you're talking about. If I mention Holland, they're probably thinking about a country in Europe. If I mention Coast Guard, they're thinking, yeah, Coast Guard stations along the East Coast, West Coast. 
They have a totally different framework. Paul is talking to a group of people who are following his framework just with simple terms and definitions. And the allegory here is going to lead us down these two columns here of either you're walking in obedience to God by faith or you're trying to perform obedience to God in order to earn your salvation. Paul looks at Isaac and Ishmael and says, there's some symbolism here that we can learn from. So he says in verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Okay, what are the covenants? One is the old covenant. And remember, the Jew would have heard this, and he's already like taken off. She's already taken off with all kinds of understanding and meaning. I'm going to slow down a little bit for you. You have the old covenant, which was given to Israel at Mount Sinai in Arabia. That's where God came to the Israelites, and that's where Moses went up to Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments. The old covenant was given to them. And you have the new covenant. What's the difference between the old covenant and the new, co- new covenant? The old covenant given at Mount Sinai, after Israel had come out of Egypt, after God had redeemed them, it was a list of commands to walk in obedience to him. It wasn't the means of salvation, but it was a list of commands. And you could say it would be characterized by the words, you will do this and you will do that. The new covenant is God's promise to us. You can read about it in Jeremiah 31, where the language of the new covenant is not you will do this and you will do that. The language of the new covenant is God speaking and saying, I will do this. I will give my people a new heart. I will put my law upon their hearts. I will forgive their sins. I will remove their iniquities. It's all of what God is going to do. So the recipient of the new covenant is looking at God saying, wow, you're going to do that. The recipient of the old covenant is saying, okay, this is what I have to do. So now you see there are two women who represent two covenants. Hagar represents the old, and Sarah, whose name is not mentioned, represents the new. We have two sons, Ishmael, who is a descendant of Hagar, Isaac, who is a descendant of Sarah. And then Paul moves into two cities. Look at verse 25. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, where the Old Covenant was received. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. And then look at this next phrase. For she is in slavery with her children. So Paul is talking about the earthly city of Jerusalem in that moment. And he's saying that Hagar corresponds to that, and it's a city of slavery. Now, why would Paul mention that? What is Jerusalem of that day? Jerusalem is the capital city where all of these false teachers are coming from. If you're going to be a good Jew, you are looking to the Pharisees and the teachers who are based in Jerusalem. And Paul is saying, that's the city of slavery. Jerusalem during Paul's day, yep, in slavery to Rome, but definitely in slavery to the law. Now think about this for just a moment. In verse 25, he says, one is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar, verse 25, is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. 
And what Paul is saying here is, is really a jab at these false teachers at this moment. These false teachers who were Jews looked at themselves and said, we are the true descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We are Jews. And Paul is saying, if we're going to understand you spiritually, your mother is not Sarah. Your mother is Hagar. You guys are Ishmaelites. You have missed God's plan. You are those who believe in your own works in order to receive salvation. It was a jab at them to call them sons of Hagar. He contrasts the earthly Jerusalem with the, the Jerusalem from above. What's the Jerusalem from above that he's talking about? This is a spiritual city. The Jerusalem above is where Christ is, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's saying that there are those who belong to this Jerusalem above who are characterized by Christ, or there are people who are members of the Jerusalem below characterized by the false teachers who believe in works. You can see where he's going with all of that. So the question that this passage is starting to ask us is, who is your mother? What city do you belong to? Are you a son of Hagar? Are you an Ishmaelite? Or are you a son of Sarah? Are you a brother or a descendant of Isaac? And he finishes out this allegory by looking at a passage from Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, verse 1, is what you see in your ESV in verse 27. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than than the one who has a husband. Okay, just a quick recap. Try to hang with me. I know it's heavy right now. Isaiah 54 was written to the Jews who had been exiled to Babylon. It looked like their life was done. They were finished. And so when Isaiah 54 is saying, Rejoice, O barren one, he's talking about a group of people who look like their lineage has been completely cut off. They're done. They're finished. But he says, Rejoice because you're going to have more descendants than the one who has a husband. You're going to have children. And the really cool thing about Isaiah 54 is it's preceded by Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, that prophecy about Christ that's coming. And at the end of Isaiah 53, you see Christ being mentioned in verses 11 and 12, where he is going to bring so many people into his family. He's going to remove their transgressions and iniquities. He moves right into chapter 54, verse 1, and he can say, hey, that's going to be true someday. Christ is going to have a city. He is going to have descendants. It's a promise that his people are going to thrive there. Okay. As you move through this allegory, I think if you can just remember, hey, it represents symbolically that there are people who are going to live according to the works. Again, Hagar represents a plan of God that was carried out in human works. Sarah, later on in life, represents, and Isaac represents a plan that was carried out by God and trusting him in faith. Okay. So, 
we get down to the end of that, and the question that comes through this allegory is, whose son are you? Are you simply trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, or are you a slave hoping to earn favor with God? Okay, now there's an answer. We move into 28 all the way down through 5, verse 1. I love how Paul speaks here. We talked about this last week. There's this assurance that he has that brings his audience along with him. And I'd like for this to be your assurance. Verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, you are children of the promise. That's who we are. We are people, folks, today who are completely dependent on the promise of God to us for salvation. We are people who cannot work out God's plan in our lives to save us eternally. We are people who let go of the wall of works, are listening to the voice of God saying, trust me, I will save you, and we are free now. We are children of Isaac. We are brothers of Isaac, completely dependent on the promises of God and not having to stand in a place where we are constantly trying to work out our salvation by works. What do we do? Paul says, but just at as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Ishmael tortured Isaac there. So it is also now. But what does the scripture say? And now he takes Sarah's words to Abraham after she saw Ishmael torturing her son. Sarah says, cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And what is Paul saying here? Paul's not literally saying, go over to your servant or your co-worker or your employee and throw him out here. He's saying everything that is represented by Hagar and Ishmael, everything that falls under this umbrella of legalism and trying to earn God's favor with works, as believers, we take that and we chuck it. We're done with it. We cut it off. It's out of our lives. We have no place in our lives or in the life of the church for teaching a salvation that has any little sniff or whiff or smell of depending on works. So if you are here this morning and you have never heard the gospel or you're saying, I've heard some stuff about it, but tell me just a little bit more, I want you to know that the Bible would say any view of salvation, of coming into a relationship with God for the forgiveness of sins, any view that suggests that you get this with Jesus and works, let's take our shovel, our pitchfork, and say, that goes out in the trash. That's, that's not truth at all. It needs to be gone. When I think about this, I think there is so much Christian confusion in our culture today. Because everything 
that mentions Christ or God gets put under this umbrella of, well, it must be Christian. And then a lot of people come in and are like, well, I guess so, I hope so, I, I believe this sort of umbrella thing that I'm under, and everybody says, as long as you believe in Jesus, you must be good, and I hope I'm good enough. There are Christian religions that we can stand with in terms of sanctity of life like today. We can stand with Christian religions in terms of view of marriage. We can stand with Christians on issues like that, but when it comes to the gospel, we cannot stand with just anybody who calls themselves Christians and say, we're one with you. And there needs to be that clarity among our minds because we're talking about the greatest freedom that you could have, eternity here. So we have a responsibility as a church to regularly and humbly cast out any kind of doctrine that does not accord with Scripture. We have to cast out the kind of teaching or the belief system that says salvation comes to you on the basis of sacraments and works. Throw Jesus in there. It's still wrong. On a personal level, you're sitting here this morning, and you can literally say, I have to throw out in my mind the kind of thinking that says, I hope God will save me. There's no room for that. Cast that out. Take this whole column over here and say, that's not true. So what is true? Chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free, period. It's not for freedom, Christ has set you free along with your works that you've done. It's just for freedom, Christ did this for us, that we would be free from the, even the, the standard of the law that marks you as guilty. You can be free from works over here. For freedom, Christ has unshackled you. So then, you are free. And now stand firm in that freedom over here. Stand firm knowing that Christ has done it all for you. And do not submit yourself again to the yoke of slavery and bondage. We are free from the law. We're free from the false teaching that says you have to do works of the law or good works in order to win a saving approval with God. There's the conclusion for every Christian you have been set free. So a picture comes to my mind. The picture is, I see a little five-year-old girl spending time with her dad on a sunny day at her favorite park. She's enjoying the swing while he pushes her. She's enjoying the merry-go-round while he makes it go around. They're walking down the street he loves her and gets her ice cream. This daughter is loving all of who her dad is and enjoying all of her dad's love for her. Guess what thought never crosses her mind? Do I have to do something to win my dad's love? This girl over here, this five-year-old girl, is free. 
And you'd say to that girl, stand firm in that freedom. Don't get all nervous and willy-nilly thinking, I got to come over here and somehow please my dad. Her dad loves her because her dad loves her. And all she can do right now is stand in that freedom and say, thank you, I receive your love. The passage that we're working through, have worked through, is teaching us of true freedom. And it goes to the core of who we are. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you are completely free. When the foe of fear deters me, when the guilt of past sins rise, I will look to him, my Savior, and know that he has won for me the prize. The prize of joy, the prize of freedom, God has offered it to me. All he asks is that I trust him. Now I hear him say, thou art free. Thou art free to know I love you. Thou art free to look to me. Thou art free to never worry. Thou art free. Thou art free. I hope just coming through this passage, I know it's heavy. I hope that every person here will know that liberating freedom of trust in Jesus Christ alone. To know that freedom of the gift of salvation rather than worrying or being in fear about it knowing that you don't ever have to do any good works to win the will and approval of your heavenly Father because Christ has done it all. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Therefore, stand firm. You're free. Let's pray.